When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. A longtime Institute member, Katha Pollitt is an American poet, essayist, and critic. She is the author of four essay collections and two books of poetry. Her column in The Nation magazine, Subject to Debate, won a National Magazine Award in 2003. In 2007, Pollitt published Learning to Drive and Other Life Stories, a collection of personal essays. I'm mostly going to read from my book of personal essays, which just came out. It's called Learning to Drive and Other Life Stories. But before I do that, because we're such a gathering intellectuals and you can't just, you know, read a piece of creative writing, I thought I would talk a little bit about writing about yourself, especially as a woman. I've always been interested in that old 1970s feminist expression, the personal is political. And actually that thought goes back before the women's movement to the kinds of party discipline practiced by communists and other leftists, and probably it goes further back than that too. But let's leave the communists aside for a moment. What did that slogan mean? It didn't mean, although it could, that every single private thing in your life could be subject to political critique by other people, that people could just, you know, stomp all over you and judge you. Nor did it mean what some later New Agey types twisted it to mean, that just by leading your ordinary life, you could make political change by buying this product instead of that one, or by exercising, or becoming more spiritual. Basically, it meant that a lot of problems that women had in common were not just accidents of individual fortune or faults of individual character, although there might be those elements too. They were shaped by and mirrored the way women were situated in society. And yet, by various means, the essentially social nature of women's assorted predicaments were obscured and handed back to them as individual failings or nature or just the way things are. What is curious about political understandings, though, is that it's much easier to use them to understand other people than to understand yourself. And this is also true of other kinds of intellectual understandings. For example, Freudians. I mean, if you know any psychoanalysts, it's not like they can really apply their brilliant understandings to themselves. Or religious people, I mean, famous hypocrites, right? I think I'm not the only person who has noticed this disparity. It's as if you're a kind of dream figure created by yourself. And you go through life simultaneously aware that things do and don't quite add up the way in dreams a scene can take place in two places at once. The kitchen, say, that is simultaneously back in your childhood and on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Well, under the pressure of the vamps, which are described in this book, I was brought face to face with many ways in which the personal and the political were opposing forces in my life, that the values that I had and the way I lived did not really fit together. And this would probably not come as a big surprise to anyone who knew me, but it came as a surprise to me. <laughs> Most of the essays in Learning to Drive explore that split in one way or another. I'm the feminist who doesn't know how to drive. I do now. I got my license. But when I wrote the story, Learning to Drive, the title story, I did not know how to drive and had to learn how to drive. 
and many other things as well. So I don't know how to drive and I don't have a clue what's going on with my relationship with my boyfriend. In another story, I'm the web stalker, the story that has everybody so horrified for no reason at all, I might add. I'm the rationalist who finds herself obsessed with Googling her ex on the internet, something no other human being in world history has ever done. It's extremely shocking. Uh, and then in Sisterhood, I'm the believer in female solidarity who is horrified when she takes a good look at some of the qualities, the real qualities she has in common with other women. But this split isn't just in me. It was in my parents, for example, who there are also stories about. My father was a communist who thought at once, Stalin was great. Communism was too good for those Hungarians. They should have been grateful for the Russians. He said those things. So he thought Stalin was great. And he was also a civil liberties lawyer who revered the Constitution. And I also read about my mother, who was also a communist, who was a very sophisticated lover of books and music. And she was a working woman in the 50s and 60s when that was not so usual. But she was still trapped in that whole 1950s femininity thing. She could not really get out of it. So we think we live in a tell-all age. And this is such a joke. We think because we're more open about drugs and drinking and sex. And as long as you adhere to the approved storyline of those things, it's okay. And the approved storyline is a recovery narrative, which is I committed these terrible sins and I hit bottom and now I'm a renewed person I wanted. And there are lots of people, you would never know this, who use drugs throughout their life. W.H. Auden took amphetamines every day. They would serve him his breakfast and there was like a little pill on a plate. He was still a great poet. You can't really say that it did him any harm, or if it did, that it outweighed, you know, the wonderful good things it did for him. But the memoir is always about this hitting bottom and getting clean thing. Once you get outside the recovery narrative, there are still a lot of things you're not supposed to say, especially if you're a woman. Imagine a memoir in which a woman described her sheer relief at having an abortion. No guilt, no regret, no going on about the fetus and how she'll always remember its birthday and, you know, all this kind of thing. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, Amy Richards wrote a piece for the New York Times Sunday Magazine about being pregnant with triplets and having a reduction down to a single fetus. She said in this piece that she didn't want three kids at once. And one reason she gave was that she didn't want to lose her work life and be a low middle income struggling mom. And here she made a fatal error. She made a few jokes at the expense of the life she imagined she would have to lead. But I didn't want to move to Staten Island and I saw myself buying giant jars of mayonnaise at Costco. Now, even people who themselves would have a horror of those giant jars of mayonnaise would not say that. They would then, oh, you're so elitist. And you know, I love the little triplets, best thing that ever happened. So she was very brisk about it. And maybe she came off a little cold. And cold, along with angry, aka shrill, is the worst thing a woman can be. The outcry against poor Amy Richards was tremendous. You would never know that this reduction is incredibly common. I mean, you don't see too many triplets around, do you? There's a reason for that. It wasn't what she'd done, exactly. It was that she wasn't sorry. She didn't put a whole layer of regret and I'll never know, the other life, the road not taken. She didn't do that. And that was a fatal error for her. There are lots of memoirs out now about motherhood. And with one exception, the ones I've read are all the same. The woman has a great life in a supposedly egalitarian marriage. Then, uh-oh, she has a baby. It's supposed to be wonderful, but no, she feels trapped and resentful. And then, thanks to her wonderful husband, she embraces her new life. Less ambition, more happiness. Less romance, more love. The tone is spunky and funny and wisecracking, 
even when she's describing a nervous breakdown, <laughs> we are invariably assured that the couple has reestablished a great sex life. This is very important in autobiographical writing. You have to you know, get your credential right out there about your great sex life. I neglect to do that, I'm sorry to say. Frankly, not that I don't have to. I just didn't put it in the book because some things are private. Frankly, I think these writers are talking through their hats. I never believe a word they say. The big exception, and I recommend this book to you, is the British writer Rachel Cusk's memoir of New Motherhood, A Life's Work. It's dark and scathing and hilarious about the moronic cult of maternal perfection, or as some reviewers had it, curiously bitter and self-centered, and what did she have a baby for anyway if she didn't want to take care of it? It was actually when I was a new mother that I first realized how big the gap was between what I and maybe some other women felt and what we could say even to each other. I never met a woman whose marriage got better from having a baby. And in fact, in the story in the book, which is called Beautiful Screamer, I say something like, you know, people who told you, to, you know, who were having a baby to save their marriage were out of their minds. It's like you don't like your furniture, so you burn it down the house. It always made the marriage worse. And in fact, Typically, this moment, the moment of new motherhood, is the moment or was the moment when, in my experience of other people, of course, the scales fall from a woman's eyes. She just really sees what life is all about, but it's too late. <laughs> and the playground I used to go to down in Riverside seethed with fed upness. A man would come into that playground, you know, like once a week, and you could just see all the women saying, oh, so now you're showing up. And then he would put on this big show, like, come on, Justin. Let's play. And then the truth would always come out because it would be, now, Justin, when they're trying to go home, which toys are yours? How about this yellow pail? Is that yours? And you see the other one saying, aha, you see, what a faker. Very few women talked about what was going on in their marriages. As for the children, it was the same thing. You could say you were tired and we were all totally exhausted, but you couldn't say you were bored. You know, in something I wrote, I made a joke about how boring it is to play horses on the floor with my daughter with her little plastic horses. It's unbearably tedious. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's also really boring. You really would rather be reading a book. Yeah, how about that? And I talk about some of these things in that essay. And there was this huge contrast I felt all the time between just the intense joy and love I felt toward my daughter and the loneliness and frustration and marginalization that becoming a mother entailed. The individual and the social, and in my case, the marital also, seemed to pull in very different directions. And then, as I write, I got divorced. Things got a lot better. Anyway, it wasn't my husband's fault, but there was something about the marital situation in that instance that is difficult. In some ways, it is easier to be a single mother or maybe a single father, too. Well, Muriel Rukeyser famously wrote that if one woman told the truth about her life, the world would split open. And yet the world, as we see it, is still in one piece. And I would say the truths, plural, still wait to be told. And in Learning to Drive, I try to tell some of my own truths. So there it is. Anyway, I want to read a story from the book. And since this is such an intellectual gathering, I won't make the mistake I made at the New Canaan Library last Monday, where I had a small select audience. And I saw that there were like five men there. And I thought, so I'm not going to read the story about new motherhood and about the terrible boyfriend. I'll read the story about how when I was a young poet in New York, I made a living proofreading pornography. Because I thought, you know, pornography, men, sex, everyone's interested in sex. And this audience of sort of middle-aged guys just sort of sat there horrified. I thought, well, it's too late to stop now. I just plunged ahead. But I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to read a very elevated story about being in a Marxist study group, which may be an experience some of you have had. It's called In the Study Group. Toward the end of the 1990s, 
long after most people I knew had put their German ideology and their 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon up on the top shelf of the bookcase with the Norton Anthology and the Six Greer Plays, I joined a Marxist study group. This was something I had avoided throughout my 20s and 30s when Marxism still had some life in it. Before it migrated from political economy, the actual subject of Marx's inquiries, to criticism of art and literature, topics about which he had remarkably little to say, and where he joined Freud, another big thinker booted out of his original field. The two of them were like heads of bankrupt corporations who had donned blue jeans with elasticized waists and were enjoying a leisurely retirement as film buffs and book clubbers and explorers of trendy new neighborhoods. It was pathetic, really, when you thought about it, the way Marx, that bushy-bearded, carbuncle-tormented Victorian, who had laid bare the secret workings of all human history and caused the foundations of the world to quake, had become just another instant analyst of everything from Hamlet to Batman. Now that Marxism was over, it had a thrift store charm. You could feel a melancholy curiosity about it, the way you could wonder about a Harris tweed suit still sporting its Scottish label that had wound up at the Salvation Army store. How close victory had seemed, and not so long ago. The man I lived with, let's call him G, since that's not his initial, suggested getting some like-minded people together to focus on the anti-Bolshevik tendency of council communism, and I signed on right away. There were about 12 of us altogether. We met every six weeks or so in an apartment on Sheridan Square. To walk into that living room with its thickly plastered walls and yellowing rock prints was to walk into academic Bohemia circa 1955. The nubbly brown Danish modern sofas were draped in worn Mexican blankets. A thick shag rug with a bold orange and white Scandinavian design lay on the worn wooden floor. The bookshelves were crammed with the paperback classics of my youth. One-dimensional man, who rules America, the power elite, no exit. The plain narrow kitchen contained no appliance invented in the last 30 years. <laughs> I'm making the place sound dusty and shabby, but actually it had an aura of simplicity and good cheer, as if serious, hopeful work was done there. Things more important than redecorating, and also more conducive to the deeper kinds of happiness. Ruth, to whom the apartment belonged, was an anthropologist who had done significant work on patterns of land tenure in Chiapas. Up there on the eighth floor, with the sun flooding in and a view of clouds and water towers, you could imagine the streets below as they used to be, with bookstores and coffee shops where the nail salons and Duane Reads are now. It was as if the apartment was part of the alternate version of history council communism itself belonged to. This is what life would look like when the workers ran the show, rumpled and comfortable, with a lot of burnt sienna accent pillows. <laughs> I should say that it was only for me that Marxism seemed over. Surely I would tell G at least once a week, it had to count for something that every single self-described Marxist state had turned into an economically backward dictatorship. Irrelevant, he would reply. The real Marxists weren't the Leninists and Stalinists and Maoists or the Trotskyists either, those bloodthirsty romantics, but libertarian anarchist socialists. People like Anton Panikok, Hermann Gorter, Karl Korsch, scholarly believers in true workers' control, who had labored in obscurity for most of the 20th century, enjoyed a late afternoon moment in the sun after 1968 when they were discovered by the new left, and had now once again fallen back into the shadows of history, existing mostly as tiny stars in the vast night sky of the internet, archived on blogs with names like Diary of a Council Communist and Break Their Haughty Power. They were all men. The group itself was mostly men. 
This was, as Marxists used to say, no accident. <laughs> there was something about Marxist theory that just did not appeal to women. G and I spent a lot of time discussing the possible reasons for this. Was it that women don't allow themselves to engage in abstract speculation as thought? That Marxism is incompatible with feminism, as I sometimes suspected? Or perhaps the problem was not Marxism, but Marxists. In its heyday, men had kept a lock on it as they did on everything they considered important. Now in its decline, Marxism had become one of those obsessive lonely guy hobbies, like collecting stamps or 78s. Maybe like collecting, it was related through subterranean psychological pathways to sexual perversions, most of which seemed to be male as well. You never hear about a female foot fetishist or a woman like the high school history teacher of a friend of mine who kept dated bottles of his own urine on a closet shelf. Maybe women's need for speculation is satisfied by the intense curiosity they bring to daily life, the way they're collecting masculine fashion and domesticity instead of old records, shoes, and ceramic mixing bowls. And their perversity can be satisfied simply by enacting the highly artificial role of woman, by becoming, as it were, fetishizers of their own feet. <laughs> Our study group then was typical in that it was mostly men, and it was also typical in that one of those men, G, was despite much egalitarian rhetoric, the leader, the one who sat in the big rocking chair and framed and paced the discussion. The group was unusual, though, in that a number of the men actually had working class jobs. True, G taught philosophy and Richard was a musicologist and Miguel was getting a PhD in economics. Neil was a child psychologist and his wife, Jenny, was a computer programmer. Beautiful Zafdig Samira from Lebanon worked for a foundation. But Quentin, who did outreach with homeless drug addicts and on bad days looks as if he might have been one himself, was so poor, he read his email at the library. Patrick was a firefighter. Matt was a carpenter. Len drove a truck. Andre, who lived just outside Paris, where he wrote witty, urgent articles for Les Temps Modernes under a pseudonym, was an electrician. Except for Matt, who had dropped out of grad school. They were self-educated. Working class intellectuals straight out of the 19th century. They came home after work, changed into clean clothes, and began their other life of reading, writing, talking, and in the case of Matt, smoking phenomenal amounts of pot. What the working class might have been, minus the pot, but for the invention of television. They knew an astonishing amount about a wide variety of subjects. They had read everything. The women in the group were mostly girlfriends. In fact, although I didn't know this at the time, several were or had been the girlfriends of my boyfriend. <laughs> he liked to keep them around. The style of the men was the one that always at first makes my heart beat faster and then sink into lethargy and resentment, intellectual self to select. Matt, in particular, went in for long ecstatic arias. Every day, he would say, his long, thin, angular body wreathed in bluish cigarette smoke that made him look like a very cool DJ, or possibly Satan, as imagined by Paul Oster. <laughs> Working people get up and make the world run. They keep the factories going. They run the subways and drive the trucks. They put up buildings. They fix whatever is broken. They plant and grow and harvest and make the food. They press the buttons on the elevators to take the CEOs to their offices on the 40th floor, where those CEOs do nothing. At this point, the group would perk up at what was indeed an amazing thought. What if, one day, the workers simply decided not to go to work? Our world, so thick and solid, with its factories, prisons, highways, schools, vast construction projects of every kind, its dense, sticky web of social and economic hierarchies, rested in the end on will, the willingness of the oppressed to perpetuate it when they could blow it away with a single collective breath. It followed that when the capitalist system collapsed, under circumstances that were impossible to foretell and pointless even to speculate about, 
the workers would know what to do. They wouldn't need a vanguard party or a group of intellectuals to tell them how to run the world. They were already doing it. They would organize themselves exactly how and for what. No one could predict, but it would be wonderful. Matt would get all excited, imagining how instead of remodeling lofts in Tribeca for recording industry hotshots, he could use the same skills to fix up apartments in Bedford-Stuyvesant. This was the part I never could understand. If one couldn't predict or shape or control or cause the end of capitalism, if whatever ideas we had about it would all be swept away in the great deluge that was to come, if intellectuals would be in any case irrelevant and the working class would spontaneously take charge of production, what was the point of flogging ourselves through all this strenuous reading? Why discuss and debate when we could just wait and see? It was all very well to say that activism and community organizing and electoral politics were pointless. The futility of such endeavors was given to G and Matt, the subject of considerable sarcastic eye rolling. But so, by the same argument, was being in a study group. Surely voting couldn't be a more ineffectual way to shape the future than talking to each other in Ruth's living room. We're intellectuals, G would say with a shrug when I raised this point. So we try to understand things, even if it's useless. But had not Marx himself written in the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, up until now, philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. How did my reading of Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle help me change the world? Well, actually, I only skimmed it. <laughs> Meetings began around 10 with bagels, orange juice, and coffee, and went on all day. All day! The glare bouncing off the high, wide windows, the smoke from Jeff's cigarettes, the endless drone of male voices made the session simultaneously intense and soporific, like the reading itself, which I usually had not finished and sometimes had barely begun. That was my useless teenagerish rebellion, the flip side of my hero worship of G that was so puzzling to my friends. How could they not see what made him stand out? He was so clever, so dashing, so handsome. You should go out with that tall guy in the overcoat, my husband told me over drinks while the lawyers bickered over our divorce. And indeed, that coat was a splendid garment, romantically long and threadbare. Walter Benjamin might have worn it escaping from Berlin. <laughs> My heart melted when G took up a collection from the group for the train fares of Patrick, who came from Boston, and Quentin from Baltimore. It was a sort of thoughtful gesture, redolent of left solidarity and shared privation that I imagined only he would think of. In his old-fastened herringbone jackets and rimless glasses, G seemed to incarnate an entire alternate history of the left, a left with no gulags or murdered poets or nutty agricultural ideas. Its touchstones were the Paris Commune, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the German Workers' Councils, the anarchists in Spain. Failures all and finished long ago. Perhaps I sometimes thought council communism was so appealing precisely because it had had so little chance to be dirtied by the world. Perhaps too, even studying council communism was a way of not facing obvious truths about people, their selfishness and power seeking, their capacity for self-delusion and delight in screwing each other over. It wasn't as if the group members were so pure. Consider the case of Billy. This was Matt's friend and fellow grad school dropout, as pale and quiet as a mushroom, who had come to the group in the beginning, but was now living in obscurity upstate and working off the books to avoid having to pay child support. According to Matt, Billy was the victim of his evil girlfriend who had used him to get pregnant after he'd rescued her and who was now trying to extract cash from him for the baby he had never wanted. Wait, I would say, he took her out of a mental hospital? He relied on a crazy woman to take charge of birth control? Like it would kill him to use a condom? Somebody's got to support that baby, why not Billy? 
This would invariably provoke sardonic remarks about family values and welfare reform and the folly of expecting a sad sack like Billy to assume any kind of responsibility even over his own penis. Conversations like this made me hate men. What if socialism, all that warm-hearted falder all about community and solidarity and sharing, was just an elaborate con job, a way for men to avoid supporting their kids? I wouldn't put it past them. I had always felt that left-wing men were the worst. In college, I would look around the cafeteria tables where the anti-war activists sat for hours over tuna melts and Cokes and think how sad it was that my politics had led me to this very small pool of potential boyfriends. <laughs> All seriously problematic. The Maoists of the Progressive Labor Party were rigid and bizarre and always trying to get you to hand out leaflets at six in the morning. The rock and rollers and weatherman sympathizers were callow and conceited and usually stoned. Yet it was not possible to be with a man who was conservative or apolitical or even just a Democrat, somebody who might have, say, voted for Hubert Humphrey. Even a McCarthy supporter was pushing it. Those people were so naive. A curious feature of the group was that although G was the de facto leader, only some of the members shared his politics or even understood what they were. Judith, G's secret girlfriend, was a liberal feminist whose academic field was Victorian fiction. When I asked G why she was suddenly interested in plunging into abstruse Marxist theory, he said she was looking for a challenge to take her mind off her divorce. Ruth and Samira were progressives, quote unquote, and didn't seem to notice that the men in the group never uttered this word without scorn. They were always signing petitions and going to demonstrations and writing letters to their congresspeople about FCC regulations or the wage. Activities the men regarded not only as futile, but undignified, a bending of the need to power. Quentin, the Baltimore poverty worker, was hot for grassroots action. He self-published a newsletter that was mostly a list of all the wildcat strikes going on around the world. There were always more of these than you might think, especially if you overlooked the size of the world. Len was even worse. He actually tried to organize his fellow Teamsters into supporting a dissident faction in the union in open disregard of G's belief that unions were the way workers were co-opted and managed on behalf of capital. But Len was a special case. He was still extracting himself from his intense involvement in news and letters, a sect famous for its stern but shifting line and propensity for fission. The group's members' chief activities, besides discovering and ousting heretics from their midst, was reading Hegel. Those who survived the double barrage of show trials and German philosophy were iron men of dispute, hair splitters without equal. For having the wrong view of the breakup of Yugoslavia, they had called Len out on the carpet and strongly encouraged him to study Hegel's phenomenology of spirit before he got any more bright ideas. And such was their psychological power that he carried Hegel everywhere like a lunchbox. <laughs> Two News and Letters members showed up at one meeting, ostensibly to join in the discussion, but really we all believe to keep tabs on Len. Victor and Joan, a tall, thin, pallid married couple with glasses and discolored cannibal teeth who looked as if they spent their days writing pamphlets in damp basements, like the anarchists in The Secret Agent. Within minutes, I was arguing with Joan about Kosovar independence, even as I thought, how strange, none of us knows anything about it. <laughs> there was something about them that provoked you to disagree, the way Pepper makes you want to sneeze. <laughs> Len stayed, Quentin disappeared, and sent Ruth a letter excoriating the group for its do-nothing philosophy. He wants to be the big activist leader, G said mockingly. The same thing he told me when Andre, in town on a visit, reported on his work organizing the huge marches and rallies of the unemployed that galvanized France that year. Samira left too for a while. She was spending weekends with a playwright she'd met on the internet. And then one day she was back, pale and thin and more beautiful than ever. Matt turned 40, quit smoking, and became a health nut. 
He gave up meat and then real food entirely. <laughs> he sat through the festive dinner parties and ended the meeting, sipping Gary Null's green stuff out of a thermos. <laughs> he drank so much carrot juice that his skin took on a faint orange sheen. He claimed his regiment was causing hair to sprout on his receding hairline. And sometimes it did seem as if a soft, colorless fuzz was blooming there. Why did I stay? When I skipped a meeting, I could feel G's disapproval, but there was more to it than that. The group offered me a way to rethink my own increasingly marginal, feudal-seeming, dated, liberal pinkishness. Once at a demonstration, I saw a well-known woman writer, short and stout, with snapping bright brown eyes and flyaway gray hair in a long black skirt and a Mexican peasant blouse. She was turning a paper roller, like the street singer's prop in the Three Penny Opera, on which the sins of the Reagan administration were illustrated with stick figures, and she explicated them in a sing-song parody kindergarten teacher voice. Ooh, look, less money for children, more money for war. That's my future, I thought. That will be me. I will be a well-meaning folk art decorated person who embarrasses herself for worthy causes. I wanted a radical critique. There had to be more to the left than calling for more funds for Head Start. The problem was a truly radical critique, a perspective that got high enough off the ground to see the pattern whole, how the very institutions that seem to challenge the system, like unions or left-wing parties or nonprofits, are in fact part of it, left one with nothing to do except read and theorize. You wait, G would say when I got excited about some new thing, the US Labor Party or John Sweeney's attempts to revitalize the AFL-CIO or even the Million Mom March. In two years, nobody will even be talking about this. Fact is, he was usually right. At one level, the group appealed because unlike most of the left, its policies weren't about liberal guilt. They were too abstract for that. You didn't have to feel bad because we weren't giving all your money to the homeless. The homeless would have to save themselves. Beat the poor, G would say, quoting Baudelaire, meaning the workers will have to suffer until they give up their illusions. In a way, it was the left's version of republicanism. If you're a victim, it's your own fault. Actually though, I didn't get rid of my liberal guilt. I still raised money for Afghan women and bought overpriced Mars bars from black teenagers on the subway. I simply acquired a new guilt, the feeling that I should like and admire the other group members and didn't because I was a snob. <laughs> Why couldn't I take Len seriously? when he was obviously a good and kind person who worked harder in a day than I did in a month? Why did Matt's perorations make me feel like I was on a bad date where the man talks endlessly about himself? Why, when I saw G surrounded by this pickup team of acolytes, did I feel pity, a pity I immediately suppressed and replaced with self-reproach for judging him by bourgeois standards of success? Once I skipped the afternoon session to have coffee uptown with two old friends I hadn't seen in ages, the cozy little restaurant with its steamed over windows and well-dressed women sharing elegant desserts <coughs> might have well have been on Saturn. They must think I'm insane, I thought, as I tripped away brightly about the all-day meetings, the readings about Matt and Len and my brilliant, underappreciated boyfriend. I sound like I'm in a cult. It was only after G moved out and I stopped going to the meeting that I realized how true that was. I had been, in a way, in a cult. Like all cults, the group was organized around a charismatic leader, G. It had a secret sexual agenda which was for him to gather his current and former girlfriends together. And it had a secret revelation, a way of understanding the world that made sense only when you got deep inside it. And then, as if a light bulb suddenly switched on, seemed to illuminate everything. Perhaps it was not very likely that current trends in occupational health and mortality had been completely explained in 1975 by a graduate student G had known in Cambridge, 
who after producing his one article published in a tiny left-wing journal had faded from view. But it was possible if you squinted at reality at just the right angle, you could see it. That was the dark side, the rivalries and sexual undercurrents, the fetish of the arcane, the political passivity, they coexisted strangely with the belief that something terribly important and real, something we called politics, was taking place right there in Ruth's living room. In a way, we missed the whole point of council communism, which was collective self-reliance and egalitarianism and the constant renewal of energy through engagement with concrete reality. We were like the German proletariat, which rose up, forced out the Kaiser, ended the First World War, and then turned in its weapons because it trusted the perfidious socialists. Well, you can see why. Nobody likes going to meetings all the time. But perhaps that was another problem with council communism. It relied too much on people being alert and rational and not having hidden motives, motives hidden even from themselves. Those dark parts aren't the whole story though. There were good things too. Unlike most of the academics and writers I've known, for example, the people in the group seemed genuinely interested in each other's ideas. When Patrick, our firefighter, read out loud one of his meticulously detailed erudite essays about neo-capitalism in China or the prospect for workers' resistance in Vietnamese garment factories, everyone leaned forward with anticipation. Now we were going to learn something. Now we were in for a treat. Was that only because nothing tangible, money or fame or careers was at stake? There were moments when through the blue haze of Matt's cigarettes, I could glimpse what thinking together might be, something joyful and devoted. Thinking together was not something I was good at, or to be honest, cared to be good at, but maybe that was my own limitation. Some of the people in the group were a little odd perhaps, but then so are most people. If you accept the world as it is though, if you are strange the way everyone else is strange, people don't look at you closely or inquire about your motives the way they do of those with different ideas. You're like one of those quiet people whom the neighbors can't believe acts murdered his whole family because he smiled in the elevator and said, yes, it looks like rain. In the same way, it's easy to make fun of council communism as practical and unrealistic. Of course it was unrealistic to imagine that the working class could run a whole complex modern society by organizing and linking democratic and egalitarian governing groups in workplaces, to insist that society's scut work be shared so that nobody got stuck for life cleaning toilets or glaring from behind the counter at the Department of Motor Vehicles to ask how scarce luxury goods like ground crew burgundy or opera tickets could be distributed in a way that didn't reflect an entrenched privilege. G used to infuriate me when he suggested that under communism, everyone would change their work every few years. He insisted that with exceptions like science or medicine, anyone could pick up the skills needed for any job in a couple of weeks. Wow, I'd say. I hope I'm not on I-95 when you come barreling down in a semi. <laughs> he made communism sound like one of those vocational schools advertised on the covers of matchbooks. But were these woolly utopian proposals wilder than the accepted wisdom of the 1990s? For example, that immense wealth could be generated and the economy transformed by internet startups that produced and sold nothing. That the market was the ultimate arbiter of every question and that every human need or desire could be met by the quest for profit. The truth is, I miss the group. Sometimes when I walk past Ruth's building, I look up and I see the lights burning in her living room window. I imagine them all up there, talking away seriously and purposefully, leafing through books and reading passages out loud. There's a fresh pot of coffee on the table and many copies of the New York Times lie spread out and scattered on the floor. Matt tells a long story. Samira passes around a petition and everyone signs. If I were there, I would be fidgety and irritable as at a family gathering that's gone on for too long. But since I'm down on the street, I forget that part. 
I even forget that the reason I'm not up there with the others is that I could not stand to be in the same room as G for even two seconds. Instead, I find myself wondering if Len is still wrestling with Hegel and if he agrees with him that the owl of Minerva takes flight when night is falling, that a historical era can be grasped only when it is over, that you understand something only when it is too late to do anything about it. Long after I left the group, I finally read the seminal text of anti-Bolshevik communism, Workers' Councils by Anton Panikok. The writing, as I'd feared, was dense and flat and full of technical terminology, although not without flashes of wit. And the translation had not quite made it all the way from Dutch into English. <laughs> Still, the more I read, the more I felt that here was something wonderful and noble. Even the section headings moved me. The task, fight, the foe, the war, the peace. Who writes like that today? Who thinks like that today? Those confident monosyllables seem to speak of a whole world of lost assumptions. The truth existed and was knowable. That human beings could consciously shape history and determine their fate that this is our work, together and alone. I thought of Panikok, who was not only a Marxist theorist, but a notable astronomer. The Astronomical Institute of the University of Amsterdam is named after him. I thought of him living alone and writing his steadfast and hopeful book day by day while the Second World War raged on, while the Nazis occupied Holland and Anne Frank and her family were rounded up with the other Jews and people starved in the streets in the terrible winter of 1944. It would have been easy then to believe that civilization was finished, that human beings were wolves, no worse than wolves. Perhaps even though he was a scientist, Panikok looked up at the stars and wondered if they sparkled with malice. But he kept writing. What else could he do at that point? And little by little, the pages piled up on his desk. Then one day the war was over and he put down his pen and looked around him and thought, and so we begin again. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute of Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.